For the past several years, the Fraternal Order Police has been sounding the alarm about the nationwide surge in crime. All across this country, our communities are seeing real life and often deadly consequences of rogue prosecutors failing to hold violent, repeat criminals accountable. When rogue prosecutors like George Gascon in Los Angeles, Kim Fox in Chicago, and Larry Krasner in Philadelphia choose to hand out a slap on the wrist to serious offenders, criminals become emboldened. They commit acts of violence knowing that they will not face significant consequences for their actions. Law-abiding citizens should have no patience for public officials who undermine the work of law enforcement agencies, especially when crime and violence is impacting so many lives. Prosecutors in too many jurisdictions are abusing their authority by imposing a social agenda instead of enforcing the law. Across the country, leaders of the Fraternal Water Police are fighting back against rogue prosecutors and activist judges because Americans should not have to live in fear. Today, we're joined by Tim Shea, former acting administrator for the Drug Enforcement Administration. Prior to serving at DEA, Tim served as the U.S. Attorney for the District of Columbia during the Trump administration. In that capacity, he led the largest U.S. Attorney's Office in the country, responsible for prosecution for both federal and local crimes in the District of Columbia. I'm Patrick Gills, National President of Fraternal Order Police, and this is The Blue View. Well, Tim, thank you for, for joining us for, on, on The Blue View. Uh, I, I have to tell you, I, I've enjoyed working with you over the years. Uh, just your insight on, on so many different aspects of the criminal justice system has been very, very uh, helpful to, to the Fraternal Order Police. So thanks for coming with us, uh, to, with us today to kind of share your thoughts on, on a rising crime uh, across this country, and some of the some of the, the factors that are that are are creating this uh, the increase in cities across the country. But before we do, t- tell us a little bit about yourself. Thanks, Pat. It's great to be here with you. We've worked together over the years. I've actually been associated with FOP for many many years, and uh, going back to my first uh, time at uh, at the Justice Department in the early '90s, which is where I started uh, at DOJ at, as a associate deputy attorney general, then as an assistant U.S. attorney. And it's interesting because at that time, uh, crime was through the roof then. Uh, we hit some of the highest crime rates in the history of the country back in the early 90s. And the surge was uh, was real and it was felt and, and it was caused in some, some ways by a lot of the same problems we have today, which is, you know, lax sentencing um, and bail reform and, and, and other things that, that recounted for a lot of the increase in crime. At that time, the Berlin Wall fell. So we, at Justice at the time, realigned our resources to focus them on violent crime. So the FBI and other agencies that were doing anti-Soviet stuff, there was no more Soviet Union. So we ended up focusing that on violent crime. Then there was uh, uh, laws enacted by Congress and others that increased penalties. And over the next 25 years or so, crime started to go down. And there was no accident. I mean, there was more people in jail, it's true, but the crime was a lot lower. And now you're seeing, uh, you know, a change where we're seeing an uptick in in, a significant way around the country, as you mentioned. Yeah. So. When we look at the uh, look at these, it, 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 in, in many ways, it's a tale of two cities. I look across this country, and you have cities, uh, large cities, that are doing quite well. Uh, they have a holistic approach where everybody, all of the spokes in the wheel of the criminal justice system, are working together, and we see low crime rates. And we see cities the same size, where um, there are a number of factors of people walking in, working in different directions uh, that that have their own ideologies on on how. Uh, whether it's be social reform or whatever, or, you know, activist DAs or judges, uh, we're seeing 
those are the cities that are having the highest crime rate. So can you contrast that back to the 90s, uh, to where we are now? And, and what's the difference between then? What do you see uh, is, is our present day challenges that we have or why we see crime on, on a steady rise? Right. One of the big differences, and I think you pointed out, is, is that there's sort of a social justice agenda that is really affecting uh, people directly through the crime rate. And you're seeing that starting with the defund the police movement that, that has that has impacted uh, just the numbers of police officers on the street, but the morale of police officers, the ability to attract good good people to the forces. And I think that that's been a problem. Uh, I think you've seen <clears throat> a, um, uh, a lax bail laws where they've relaxed the bail laws around the country, New York and other places, or, the, or these activist DAs will go in and charge people lesser offenses that don't require bail. So people are out on the street. And that contributes to the revolving door of justice. Uh, you're seeing lower sentences, people trying to ratchet down the sentencing, uh, not only the guidelines, but the enhancements, not charging the enhancements like extra gun charges and the things that we normally do. And that's what resulted in a lot of the decreases in crime in the 90s. And so you see, uh, because in the end, what happens is, um, is that most of the crime in this country is committed by a small number of people. And if you get those people, if you incapacitate them for a certain amount of time and protect society, you're going to lower the crime rate. And that's, and that's what we did. The other thing I'll make a plug for based on my, on my previous background at the DEA is, uh, is the drug, is a drug uh, trafficking contributes to this violent crime problem. Uh, the, every police officer and, and chief I talked to around the country when I was administrator, would talk about how the drug trafficking is contributing to the violent crime in their neighborhood. It's a tool of the trade of uh, violence to maintain their, their uh, market share. Um, every search warrant that the, the DEA executed, you know, found guns. I mean, it was, it's one of those things. The other thing that's not mentioned a lot, and I think it's violence is, uh, is the OD deaths in this country. You're seeing because of the flood of drugs from Mexico, primarily, um, 105, 107,000 people a year dying from overdoses. That's a record, a history of this country. Uh, most of that's from fentanyl. In fact, uh, of the uh, Americans that are 18 to 45 years old, the highest cause of death in this country is fentanyl. I mean, more than anything else. And that, that's, that's, un, that's incredible. So to me, you know, that's, that's also a, uh, contributing to the violent crime in addition, but that's also part of this agenda because you have these people and it always burned me as a, as a, a DEA administrator to, to people talk about nonviolent drug offenses. Well, there are no nonviolent drug offenses if you're a dealer, right. because you perpetuate violence through the trafficking of drugs and through the, and through the victims that you uh, kill kids in their beds at their home eat having a, a fake oxycontin pill that's laced with fentanyl that happens all the time i talked to parents about that it was it was a tremendous problem it still is today and that, that's contributing to it as well yeah and and you know you you, you touched on something that uh, that is so true it's something i've been saying and and, and anyone in law enforcement uh, knows this that, that you know right it's a small percentage of people are doing a violent crime uh, the most violent crime in this country uh, and and the problem is is that the revolving door is putting them back on a street and and just uh, just a few weeks ago two different incidents we lost three police officers of people that law enforcement took off the street because they were violent offenders 
there were uh, 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 gun violations involved and got slaps on the wrist and and went back to contribute, continue to to um, to, to victimize uh, their communities. And, and in those two instances, lost three officers because of it. But but it's not just law enforcement officers. This is happening in communities every every single day. These same people are going back and protecting the very communities that these activist DAs and and uh, activist judges are are really thinking that they're helping. Uh, they insist that they're helping the black and brown communities, the ones that are disproportionately affected more by these decisions. Um, as a prosecutor, I mean, we, we all know this. This is obvious. I, I, well, I, I, it's for, for some reason, it, it baffles my mind that prosecutors do not see that the same exact people are creating a revolving door. Do they have no conscious of seeing the damages being done by these same exact people that they keep letting out? Um, as a good prosecutor, what, walk us through the the process uh, of, of prosecution of a crime, and and where are we where are we not connecting these dots? Where is it? Where are we missing that? Where where have we gotten to in society today with some of the district attorneys that are not recognizing the right. damages being done by some of the policies that they're doing? Right. I mean, that's a good question, and, and you know, I I think of back my time as as U.S. attorney. And I had a unique district because I also was the DA in District of Columbia. So I had the local crimes as well as the federal crimes. So I had a very close working relationship with the Metropolitan Police Department, the offices from the chief on down. And I think that's the only way to do it. I think if you don't have a good relationship with the police, the DA, then then you're not going to be able to effectively protect your community. And, you know, the police are, you know, not only first responders, but they're the investigators, uh, they're the witnesses in the trials, and they are essential to this process. And I always listen to them because you pointed out, and this was true um, in in D.C., was that the, the police knew who the troublemakers were in the community. Every and, community. They, and they said, let's go after them. And, you know, a lot of them already had a, 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 a violent crime or a conviction, and they had guns. And that's a federal crime fell in possession of a gun. So we had a, we had a program in DC where we, now we got a lot of pushback from the judges and others in the, in the community, uh, you know, the, the activist community, they didn't want us making those prosecutions. But if you think about it, what is a felon doing with a firearm in the district of Columbia? That doesn't even allow firearms except to, to kill cops or to, or, to, or to shoot up a neighborhood, enforce their drug laws, and, and have innocent people lost in the crossfire. And it was unacceptable. So we worked very closely with the police. So, you know, we would have arrests, and the police would do the arresting, and, and we would work with them on policies about how we would charge each case. And sometimes that worked on the lower levels with my assistants and the, and the commanders in the field. And sometimes the chief of police wanted to raise it up. And I responded to that because especially when it came to me, I thought it was more important. Uh, most, one of the most important things was an assault on an officer. When an officer got assaulted, in my view, if, if that d- defendant is going to take a shot at a cop or is going to, in one case, throw a Molotov cocktail at a cop in a car What's he going to do to somebody who's unarmed, as an average citizen? They're more yeah. dangerous than anybody in society. And so that's why we have to get them off the street. And I was very strong on that and, and, and worked very closely with MPD to make sure that those crimes were, you know, e, you know, definitely felonies. But if we had to take them to federal court, we could take them to federal court. And that was my uh, – I, I had that luxury of being able to move things to federal court 
with a stroke of a pen, which was, doesn't, you know, always happen because as you point out, you may have a DA that's doesn't want to do anything. And you, you don't know if you have a federal crime there, so you, you can't do it all the time. But, but I think, you know, having that, you know, uh, close working relationship, having good prosecutors on the line that are going to be aggressive in their enforcement of the law, which is what we all take an oath to do. And then, um, and then at the end of the day, you have to have good laws too. You have to be supportive. You can't have bail laws that allow people out, you know, w- w- you know, onto the street uh, w- without any uh, without any consequences. One one story when I was a federal U.S. attorney, and I went to these community meetings quite a bit, and I I went to um, and and this this moved me a lot because I I, I went to uh, a meeting and and it was full of uh, locals that were in a very high crime area with, with, with MPD came with me uh, and we heard them and listened. And one of the, the biggest complaint was not about our office or MPD it was about the judges that let these people out every day. They had murders that happened in their next door and they, and they saw the guy that pulled the trigger on the street the next day. Now that, that makes it very difficult for police to investigate because it intimidates witnesses. It makes it, it, it difficult for the people to live there because they, they can't uh, function and they're afraid to in their own houses. That isn't right. And so w- as I was walking out, um, one woman came up to me and asked if she could show a picture of her daughter. I said, sure. So I looked at, she showed me a picture, beautiful, like 13 year old daughter, class picture type of thing that you get at the schools. And I said, Oh, she's beautiful. And, and that, that's nice. What's her name? That kind of thing. And then she said, I want to show you another picture. And she pulled out another picture of a person. It was her autopsy picture. Wow. And she had gotten shot in the neighborhood not too long ago. And the crime remained unsolved. And she asked that, you know, we do whatever we can to bring justice. And I think that's shows you the individual impact of, of this violent crime. And this is, as you mentioned, low income, Communities of color are the ones that are affected the most. And it was it was something that I'll, I'll never forget. The same in, when I was DA administrator in Boston, we did a takedown, worked with the Boston PD, state police, and there was a whole housing project up there, low-income housing that was taken over by a drug gang. And they basically, people couldn't go out without their permission. They had people on the roof with guns. I mean, imagine living in a fear like that, not being able to send your kids to school, people getting caught caught in the crossfire. And so we we used the federal law. And and what what happens at at that point, we take them out using conspiracy racketeering, and, and, and there's no parole in the federal system. So we take those guys out. And they, when they're arrested by the police and the DEA agents, they don't come back because they're held in detention. Then they go to jail someplace in Indiana. So they're out of the picture. And that at least is a sigh of relief until, you know, for these people that live in these communities. And I think that's, that, that's something as well. The other thing I think that people overlook the impact of violent crime, and this was true we try to identify this and, and actually work on this in the nineties is, uh, is the economic impact because there's no way you can have an economic, uh, small business in a community. You can have, you know, people trying to earn a living through markets or laundries or things like that. Small businesses, shops, if you're going to have bullets flying that people aren't going to go to shop, you're not going to be able to, to, to feed your family and employ people. And that's because of the crime rates. And it's not just that. I mean, a lot of cities have lowered the threshold of what crimes they're going to, they're going to, to, to carry any kind of weight with. 
And I, and I ask if you're a mom and pop business that's struggling to, to get by every single day, um, how many, how many $800 thefts can you handle before you have to close your doors? Well, that, that's, and, and, and really a quality of a life and community has a lot of factors. And, and one is, is the availability of these very stores and the drug stores and, and the things that we're now seeing closing across this country is you're right. This is, this is also an economic right. question. And that yeah. again, it, I, I'll go back to what I said before. Why are we not connecting the dots and recognizing the impact of some of these policies that they're failed? At what point do we recognize that this failed policy is causing real lives you know it's it's we talk about statistics and 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 i love your uh, i love your you know what you said about a mother uh you know proud of a daughter and then showing you that she's a victim uh, of of just the violence within a community but i think often we talk about percentages of increase you know it's numbers numbers are impersonal they don't care whether you like them or not uh but the reality is is numbers are really real families and lives that are forever changed because of the actions of, of district attorneys and judges that are I'm living in the comfort of wherever they live, but to certainly inflicting <coughs> damage to the very communities that they right. that they swore that they would protect. Well, you asked about the difference between 1990s and today, and, and that the one you identified is it. I didn't I didn't hear people saying they were going to uh, not prosecute larcenies under a certain amount back yeah. then. I mean, people were trying to get a hold of the communities and trying to protect themselves and, and have the government asking them to do it. When we went into African-American communities back then, I was with the attorney general and, and they, they would be asking for, for help. They would be wanting federal officers. They, they wanted the death penalty. They wanted these things where people were strong laws. Um, now you, you have people advocating for, for, for statutes like that, or actually DAs not yeah. not fulfilling their oath of office to faithfully execute the laws by saying we're not gonna yeah. we're not gonna prosecute any this law at all. I mean, they're basically repealing the criminal law when they they're do being, that. What they're doing is they're being malfeasance in right. office. That, that's that's it's simple. I don't have the right as a law enforcement officer to decide what laws that that's I'm right. going to to enact or not enact. Uh, yet prosecutors somehow have been granted that that position or that, that ability to do so by, I guess, a lack of accountability to people that they've. That well, elected. hopefully, as we saw in San Francisco, there will be some accountability. But but I think that you, you, it's an abuse of discretion. When the prosecutorial discretion <clears throat> is real, and you need to do that, but what that means, it's a case by case basis. Sometimes a prosecutor, the law needs to be adjusted to to fit a particular uh, situation if it's out of the ordinary, and that's where a prosecutor's judgment has to come in. But if you're just going to wholesale repeal a criminal statute by a fiat by issuing a memo to your staff, that's wrong. There's a way to do it. That's right. not it. Go to the legislature. That's it. Have it changed. It's a run for the legislature. Right. Um, right. No, I absolutely, absolutely yeah, so agree I think, with you. And even, you know, small crime, like it looks innocuous, like a trespass. That's an important thing. You you mentioned the small business in the low-income community. They can't call the police and get these bad people out of their stores because they can't arrest them for trespass and stop them from going in. That makes a huge difference to an individual in these in these communities that's trying to run a small business, obey the law, raise a family in the right way, and they're getting abused by the system, not only the the criminal, but by the system. Tim, even more. I mean, look at cities. Uh, Philadelphia, uh, they limit uh, the ability to do traffic stops. Uh, right. Chicago, they, they limit the ability to do foot chases. And, and the list goes on. 
uh, you, know, uh, you know, you mentioned earlier, and, and unfortunately, you know, anybody who's been in law <clears throat> enforcement more than a minute knows what broken windows is. Right. And, you know, broken windows is, is it, it, it means a lot of things to, 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 to different people. And unfortunately, it's kind of been hijacked by, because of, you know, some things that's been attached to. But the premise is, is a little decay just encourages more. It's really the health of a community. So if you if you see a problem, fix the problem. Uh, it doesn't matter if you you know what you're talking about. In this case, we're talking about uh, about about the quality of life in a community. If if you see vandalism, if you fix it, if, if you see decay, I would argue that the 21st century uh, broken windows is prosecutors who won't do their job. Right. And that's, that's where we find, unfortunately, that's where we find ourselves today, where law enforcement officers are doing their job. We're taking people off the streets. Incarceration is not the answer to everything. We recognize that. And look, the very powers we have in law enforcement are directly related to the trust we have within our community. So we have some work to do. It's not an easy, it's not an easy answer to, right. to all of these problems. But we, what we do know is we have empirical data to show that some of these, th- these things aren't working. Right. And uh, at what point do we wake up and say, you know what? It's just not happening. It's not working. And the very people we say that we're trying to protect, well, we're not. Who is speaking for the victims? Right. And I think that's a question that needs to be asked over and over again because, uh, you know, just in my experience, and I, I related a couple of the stories, but even when I was DA administrator talking to parents whose children had died of overdoses from these drug dealers, and, you know, I would go and try to, I, and we did prosecute some of these death resulting cases. And that to me is a violent crime where a drug dealer sells a fentanyl pill. Uh, fake pill that has a lethal dose in it. To me, that's, you know, whether you shoot them with a gun or you, shoot, or you give them a pill, to me, that's still dead. Same. Yeah. And so I think, you know, here you've got a situation where you've got these DAs and uh, that are going out, not only, um, you know, going after letting the revolving door continue through the bail acts, reduce sentencing, not charging what they should be charging for a crime and a lesser crime where they get no time. I mean, and then they go out and make, make commit more crime because it, what, what is true uh, before, which we uh, fixed, which was most of the crimes or a lot of the crimes c- committed in this country are by people already under a criminal justice sentence, whether that's out on bail, probation or parole in the state system. So you see these people that are should be in jail and they're not. They're not incapacitated. That's why the crime rate's going up. Look at, you know, you look at Chicago. That's got the most murders last year of any city in America, including compared to New York and LA, which have much larger populations. And you've got a city, a DA there uh, that's that's uh a, you know, a rogue DA and plus you've got a mayor that doesn't support the police. And uh, and the same is true with Philadelphia. You know, you've got the bloody last year was the bloodiest year in Philadelphia uh, in terms of homicides. It goes it, it, it beat 1991, which was the, the, the record year. And that's still, again, more than than all those other big cities. And that's a relatively small city compared to some of the others in this country. So, you know, with that D.A. and, and his unapologetic uh you know, approach to law enforcement. I don't know how they, they take that oath when they don't enforce the law. Uh, absolutely. Uh, and Tim, you, you do have an interesting perspective in the fact that uh, as the U S attorney here in, in, in Washington, uh, you did basically the DA and the federal side. So if you could just walk us through a little bit of what that process is on the DA side, historically, what, what do, I mean, we've talked about all of the uh, the results that we're having, but uh, 
what 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 links are DAs missing that in previous uh, time that they, they that they recognized that helped us lower that crime rate? What what's the steps that they're doing wrong? And then and then if you could kind of stretch that over to the federal side, if the local district attorneys are not doing it, you know we had a we had a uh, a meeting with uh, President Trump under under. In fact, you were at that meeting where we talked about those very things about about the lack of prosecution in some of these cities and the need for federal government to step in on the federal side and take over some of these violent gun crimes because, uh, because it's so, so pervasive in, right. in all of our communities. Walk a little bit through that process. Right. What can, what's, what, what missing links, what links are we missing on the, on the, uh, on the local side? And how can we reverse that course? I mean, obviously it's not working. The data's there. Right. I, I think, you know, again, I, th- I think it's uh, an example is a good way to illustrate it, but I, I, there are a couple of principles involved with the DA. Uh, when I was a federal prosecutor, a line prosecutor doing these violent crime cases, there was a case out in Virginia, right, outside of Washington on a military base, which is why I had federal jurisdiction. And uh, the FBI investigated it, and it was a, a 20-year-old in a car sitting shotgun and saw these two teenagers on the side of the road walking down one had a camouflage jacket and back then in the in the 90s it was um you know that was a prized thing so he said i want that jacket so he pulled told the kid to pull the car over the shooter got out with his gun and demanded the jacket and then he changed so he had a pocket full like eight bucks in his change and then when he said get out of here the guy and then he started shooting at the kids on a federal land. I said, this is incredible. And then I, I finally, we finally found him a few days later, but the, the real interesting point is that I looked at his rap sheet. He's only 20 years old. He had 21 arrests and didn't spend a day in jail. And I said to myself, this kid, the the next time this kid shows up, it's going to be in a murder case. And so thank God those kids weren't hit by those bullets. So we went to trial and didn't let him, I didn't let him plead out. He had the no parole in the federal system. He got, you know, the maximum amount, the judge, because I told the judge he's going to be, the next crime is going to be a murder here. And um, and that's because there was, it goes back to your point, if he had been stopped in the system and had seen his, the consequences of his actions early in his criminal career, maybe he wouldn't have been at that point. But we had to protect society because if we can't let somebody like that out, he may have been a first time in jail, but th- that's not the first time he's committed a crime, obviously, right. because he had been arrested. So it goes back to the revolving door with these DAs are making ca- <clears throat> decisions and letting people out on bail. Number one, that should be in jail. That causes uh, discomfort in the community. It causes witness intimidation. It's it's frustrating for the police because they see the people out, out, in the, uh, out on bail. And then they don't charge the case. They now process the case on a DA level, and they and the police are out there arresting them the next day for the same crime. And uh, you know their police are doing their job, but the DAs aren't. And that's where the system breaks down. You have to be consistent in the enforcement of the law. That's your duty as a district attorney. You take an oath to do that. On the federal system, so in, in the federal system. we have a little more discretion, but at the same time, you have to be consistent and fair in how you support the law, whether it's felon in possession when you're doing violent crime cases or the drug, um, you know, trafficking cases with the cartels and then in the street gangs that, that, that are the major gangs in this country. So I think for me, those are the big disconnects that you see. 
with the district attorneys that are not doing their job. And there's a lot of them there are, I have to say. I mean, I, I still stay in touch with them, and they're doing a great job. Tale and of you cities. Right. And you see that, and you see them working hard, and they're getting a bum rap by some of them, even you know the next jurisdiction over where they're, they're letting people out of jail. And that's crazy. Yeah. And we can't discredit. Uh, we have to look at, uh, you know, another crisis we're having in this country is the ability to be able to backfill. We're losing officers at a rate we've never lost before. Right. Our retirements are up. Um, officers are finding more stable uh, pr- professions. Um, and and so it's creating a the, and the best and brightest are not stepping forward to take this job because all the damage that's done. Well, you can see where. You can see where this the lack of prosecution, the lack of of uh, district attorneys doing their part of the job, how it's adding to the yeah. you know, to, to, uh, an epidemic, in my opinion, of something that cannot happen overnight. We can't fix it overnight. If we flipped a switch today and said everybody loves the police and we want you to come work, and we had a, a thousand applicants for every open position we had, and they were qualified applicants, and we hired them and put them in academy, we're still looking three, four, five years yeah. before they're. You know, before they finish the training effective officers, but but we've lost so much experience, we're putting so much burden on the officers right. that are there now. And in many cases, these same district attorneys are more more focused on damaging them than they are keeping criminals off the street. Right. And Pat, that's an excellent question. This was a big concern of mine when I was DA administrator because, you know, during that whole unrest and the funding and the defund the police movement. I, I mean, I had to, I gave them their badges. I had to address them at their graduations. And I, I brought this up. I mean, I, I really appreciated them stepping up at a very difficult time and joining the DEA. And I also saw it when I traveled around the country because the DEA can't do its job without state and local law enforcement. And we partner with them all the time in the task forces, and they are critical to our mission. And we would not be able to do it without them. And so for me, I I spent a lot of time with the state and local police because it was essential to our mission. And you could see uh, the toll it was taking uh, that these DAs in these cities that we would go to Chicago or St. Louis was another one that was, they would, you know, it was very difficult. And, and as in some ways we benefited because they gravitated to the feds because we were actually doing something with it. And we could actually, when the DAs weren't doing their job, we could go in and use federal law and take those people out and, and do it as hard as we could in those cities. And that's what we kind of did with some, and one of the uh, examples of that is, Operation Legend, which which we started and it was done in like 10 cities around the country. Turnjall Bar did it. We participated as well as DEA, where you marshaled the federal resources of ATF, FBI, DEA, and then together, working with the state and locals, we went into these high crime neighborhoods and tried to give some relief. And that's when it was ticking up back then, but now it's beyond control. Yeah. It's beyond belief what, what, the, what the crime rates are. You know, I, I love something that you pointed out earlier. You know, we, uh, we talk about uh, the demands that are on the system because there's so many people, you know, incarceration. We have the highest incarceration of any other nation. Right. Uh, at the same time, we also need to recognize that, uh, that some people just need to be kept out of society. They're, they are the ones that are causing the havoc. Uh, so until we address all of the root causes of crime, we really need to be able to take certain people off the streets. You know, law enforcement is not responsible for poverty. We're not responsible for failed school systems, not responsible for broken family units, any of those things. Yet in a lot of ways, 
you know, we kind of lump all that together and say law enforcement's not doing their job. Uh, there really needs to be a bigger approach, a bigger approach of, of how we're going to address uh, the rise in crimes in, in communities. And it comes back to a simple thing. There are so many aspects to equality to, to the health of a community. And law enforcement is one of them. Prosecutors are one of them. Judges, they're all parts of it. And when we're not working together, that's exactly what you're seeing. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if, if in, in these cities to where we're, we're struggling and we're, we're seeing that crime rate up, what is, what is the trigger? What, what brings in, when does federal step in and say, okay, we're going to, we're going to take some of these cases. Uh, what, what, what triggers that, uh, that step? Right. Well, uh, in all of these cities, uh, you know, there is a federal presence that, that works with the, on a task force level. So the FBI, the ATF, the DEA, all have uh, federal state task forces, violent crime task forces that work with the locals all the time. So a lot of the targets are set uh, jointly by the local police and the federal. In fact, at DEA, we even had, and I was surprised at this, but it was pleasantly surprised that, that, that some of our local, some of our task forces, DEA led task forces were actually led by a local cop which was impressive because they did a good job and they were the best ones for the job. So we put them in charge and they were TFO. But I think uh, we would on the federal level and let's take a drugs, for example. I mean, we would go after, you know, the, uh, this, how it should work. We would go after the organization itself and, and then use the federal laws like conspiracy racketeering so that we could capture as many people as possible, you know, from the kingpin, if it goes back, and many times it did to Mexico, to the drug cartels in Mexico, all the way to the streets of St. Louis. And we would take that organization, investigate it, work up the indictments, and then indict and arrest. And some of them would go state, some of them would go federal, depending on how culpable they were. So that's how it should work. And it does in a lot of areas. And we take out these, you know, like I mentioned in Boston, we take out a whole organization and it gives relief to a community. But when you don't have the local prosecutor, then we have to do it on our own and try to help as much as we can. But it, it depends on, on, you know, how big the person is and what their role is in the, in the conspiracy. Yeah. You know, it's, and again, you, you said earlier that uh, that intervention at an earlier age and, and holding accountable at an earlier, right. you know, early on uh, probably could divert a lot of these people. Uh, away from from that violent path, right? And uh, and we're missing it. We're missing that point. That's uh, that's that's so vitally important. You know, um, what are you hearing? I know you still are very connected with, uh, across the country with prosecutors and and, and your counterparts, uh, uh, people, your colleagues that you worked so many years. What are you hearing from them about the state of uh, of where we are now? At least right. sort of prosecutor uh, prosecutor prosecutors' uh, viewpoint. Well, I think uh, many of them are just. Um, you know, they, they can't, they, they're just outraged by the increase in violent crime. I mean, it's something that needs to be done. Um, some of them are frustrated by the fact that they're getting bad publicity because some of these DAs that are not doing their jobs uh, are out there, you know, and, and people are exposing them and they should, but it doesn't, you know, they, they, they have to deal with that that fallout as well as the, the, you know, the fallout of, of the, the criminals that then move into their jurisdiction, they have to deal with them as well. So I think you're seeing a lot of frustration with some of the, the DAs. Um, and I think that the other piece of it is the defund police, the anti-police movement, which I think was unfortunate that, 
they're going to, they have to deal with too, because again, as we mentioned and discussed, the prosecutors can't do their job without the police. And so if they don't have strong um, support and resources from the police to investigate the crimes and to be the witnesses and all that, the the DAs can't do their jobs either. You know, uh, you know, it's, it, it is, it is a lot of dynamics that, that are at play here, but, uh, if you look at the whole defunding discussion and where we were, we found a period of time, an incident happened, eight minutes and 46 seconds on the street of Minneapolis. Uh, we all look at it and we scratch our head saying, okay, there's, there's a lot, there's a lot of stuff we need to, we need to analyze here, things we need to fix, things that need to be done differently. And, uh, and, and look, every, every law enforcement officer wants, wants to improve the criminal justice system. That's, that's what, why we exist. Um, at the same time, uh, we found ourselves in a period where academics and people who had no practical experience were dictating policy and this whole defunding, it kind of, kind of felt and it fell in a time where it, 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 it it took hold, but it did take long to realize that this wasn't working. And and in a lot of places, and I got to give credit where it's at. uh, I'm less concerned how we got there. I think history will record that. And I I don't want to spend my time looking at defunding. What I will tell you now is we're at a point now where we've done, we've done a a, a corrected course. And uh, I think funding is higher than it's ever been before. We find ourselves in a position now where we're getting away from that whole, that whole, that ship sailed, um, the, the whole defunding part, but the damage was done. Mm-hmm. The damage was done, and, and 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 again, Congress is looking at ways to to fix the the damage that was done, and so I'm encouraged by that part. What I'd like to feel is encouraged that now we're moving on to the other problem. The other problem is prosecutors that are not doing their jobs, right. and I'd love to say that the trend trend is there, true, you know, as well. But I, I'm I'm just simply not seeing it. You know, we focus all the energy in blaming law enforcement, and in reality, criminal justice system, law enforcement is just only one part of it. Right. Uh, and we are completely ignoring what I see as a, as a very big problem here. If we don't get a handle on it, it's going to, it's going to continue to spiral out of control. Right. So, uh, again, while I'm encouraged to see that, uh, that we're now moving in a little bit different direction and that the whole defunding and, and recognizing the damage that was done and trying to put it back in place. Uh, again, I just don't see it happening on, on the prosecution side. Right. So with that, I'll, I'll let you any, any final thoughts before we close up. No, I, I just, <clears throat> I want to appreciate all your leadership in the FOP because I think highlighting this issue of rogue prosecutors is so important. And I think it does have an impact on, as we discussed on everyday people. Uh, and they, and people have to realize that what, what's causing it. And I think it's important for, to realize that the election of a DA is, is very, very important. It affects the quality of life of people, affects public safety. Um, and, and, uh, I think that, um, if we don't pay attention, it can be life and death of somebody. And for police, it's important too, because it's a difference between getting a fair shake and a review or getting persecuted. And I, you know, I've seen that myself firsthand. And so I think it's something that, you have to have a good DAs and to do that. So it's paying attention to those. We, we took for granted all these years that people who ran for that office were interested in following the law, but apparently that's not true. So I, I just, I, I put that out as just pay attention to the, these elections because they're, they're crucial. 
Absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't couldn't agree more. Well, Jim, thank you for uh, for joining us again. It's been a great work with you over the years. I've always admired uh, the way you've approached stuff uh, you know, and found solutions to problems. So appreciate appreciate all you do. And, and to our uh, listeners and viewers, uh, thank you for spending some time with us on The Blue View, where we talk about the, the things that are vitally important to the men and women who suit up and show up every single day in communities across America and protect, uh, protect those they swore to protect and serve. So thank you. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. To get the latest from the National FOP, make sure to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at GLFOP and on Instagram at FOP National. Thanks again. We'll see you next time.